When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply. Just a heads up that this episode contains themes and strong language that some listeners may find upsetting. Previously, and I'm not here to hurt you. It was as though my world had cracked quite physically, that I was cracking quite physically. That's very hard. We thought we had our whole lives ahead of us. Again, not something you wake up one morning and go, I think today I'll become an armed robber. Episode 3, The Polite Bank Robber. It's a mild autumn day in October before I get to chat to John again. He agrees to meet me outside Bank of Ireland on Bagot Street. This is an area John knows well. When he robbed the bank 18 years ago, he lived a stone's throw away on Waterloo Road. Between the bank and John's old house is a statue of the Irish poet Patrick Kavanagh, sitting on a bench, looking out onto the canal. They say it's a place the poet came to contemplate life. John admits it feels strange to be back here. I can totally understand. After a while, he begins to reflect on what happened that day, and he takes me back there. Can we get a double shot, an extra shot, cappuccino with an extra shot, basically? With an extra shot, yeah. Yes, please. I was apprehensive about this particular robbery, kind of from the get-go for a number of reasons. Um... So I was maybe a little bit more anxious than I would have been at, at, at other occasions, you know. Why? And from a <laughs> from a bank robber's point of view, if you'll forgive that expression, but <laughs> uh, there's a there's a revolving door, um, and um, I, I I I didn't didn't know whether that could be activated or locked or or what. Um, I knew the bank quite well. And leading on to that point, I knew it quite well because I'd, I'd been around here in my capacity as a courier and it was a place that couriers congregated to await jobs and dispatches. So the second reason I was very concerned was because I thought I might be recognised. Um, and I sat across here, it's like one of these old, these old kind of derelict looking buildings, to do my usual recce, should we say. <laughs> in the days uh, beforehand, is no, it? No, in the, well, no, no, in the, in the, in, in the time leading up to it. And would you be um, dressed in your, I yeah, want to so say, I'm, robbing uniform at that point? Mm, my, best of my, my recollection, I was, I was dressed as a, as a builder. So presumably yeah. nobody looked at you twice. Well, funny you should ask me that. I, if you can see across where that white van is, I was sitting mm. on the steps beside it and looking across and just as I was kind of thinking about maybe coming over, because again, my, my bike was up in, in Ladder Lane and it was actually down the lane a bit and I had a little bag, I think I had a bag and I had a helmet. But I'd come around here, as I say, to, to throw an eye over and just as I, I was sitting there, um, I saw somebody I recognised and it was my neighbour from Waterloo Road upstairs. I was walking across the road and he clocked me, he made eye contact with me 
And I thought, OK, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to... How am I going to explain this one? And he fixed... He kept looking at me as he crossed, and he just, avert, you know... Kept thought, no, I kept walking. And I thought, OK. OK, if he didn't recognise me, I'm good. And I got up and I walked straight across and went in. Yeah, so... Talk me through it. Like, we're standing here now at the door, looking in at Bank of Ireland. Okay, so... It was cobbled together. I think as they, they went on, they became a little bit more sophisticated and developed. I bought a gun in Smith's toy store. I do know I'd written the note. That was the important bit to me, was that I'm not here to hurt you or anyone in the bank. I normally go into these places dressed as a courier, and how could I m make myself effectively disappear. So I'm one guy. I'm not in a high-powered vehicle. You know, I don't have accomplices. I don't have all these things that you imagine from the, the movies. No, I'm one guy, and I need money, and I need it quickly, and I need it without incident. So I thought disguise would seem to be the natural way to go, so I can go in and I can queue as a builder or any number of things. But I'd have always the buttons and zips and everything removed from items and I'd have them velcroed. My real stroke of genius allegedly was a hat. I sawed hair into it so it looked like it was in a ponytail. And I collected beard shavings from my own beard so they would look natural and created what looked like a beard so that when I walked out of the bank I could rub my face and the beard would disappear. The hat would come off so I'd go from a long-haired guy with a ponytail to a skinhead or shaven head. And obviously the uniform would come off and I would be somebody very, very different. And then I'd be on a push by Camley, cycling away. My thoughts were, no matter how fast the response time of the guards, unless it's within 30 seconds to a minute, they're going to be looking for somebody very different. And I'd know all the, the routes because I'd know the area, from again, from working as a, as a messenger. And so I'd be able to disappear. You get the money in this case. The teller puts it in the bag, is that right? Yeah. It goes teller, to plan. The teller puts it in the bag and... I make for the door and the door opens. I want to do an experiment. So this is the door, yeah? Yeah. So I'm going to get you to walk me over to where your bike was. Okay. I just, I'm going to start the stopwatch on my phone. Are you running or walking at this point? Oh, I would have been, I would, I would have been doing at least a fast walk. I would have been doing at least a fast walk, yeah. yeah. Right, um, well... How can you walk? Okay, so here's the best way of describing it. How, how fast can you walk without looking conspicuous? Let, let's let's do okay, it. Okay, ready? Yeah. Okay. So we're coming out. There's a step. Okay, we're picking up the pace. Um, cross Baggett Street. Try not to get hit by a bus. It's uh, number 37 coming at us fast. Go. Okay. So Lad Lane. Okay. So there's a degree of security in, in the lane here. Um, so at this point, I'm taking off. I'm taking off mask, I'm taking off he head headgear, obviously removing beard. And you're dumping them on the street as you I'm go? I'm not dumping them, no, I'm not going to dump anything. Um, I'm underneath my high-vis, I have a jack, I have a, I have a bag, a courier bag, which is very tight to my body. I open that, I obviously put it into... Is that the same bag with the money <clears> in it? No, the bag with the money is up my sleeve. Oh, so that is a very small bag. That's a very small bag, cloth bag. Fit, fit up my sleeve. So then I walk down here. Yeah, so that's, um, that's been a minute and 13 seconds. And 13. But yeah. we slowed down there. We slowed down. We slowed down. And we actually let a car go past it, so I'm sure he didn't do that on the day. 
I was at home, fully changed, counting money. <laughs> Within five, ten minutes, I, I, I heard the, I could hear a guard, a, a helicopter, you know, circling. During John's spree of bank robberies, the media dubbed him the polite bank robber, a nickname which, in my opinion, makes light of the crime and is a little disrespectful towards the victims. And there are real victims here. It's a trap I was all too aware of as we played cops and robbers for an afternoon. John is charming. He's the type of guy you'd go for a pint with. Regardless of his intention, having a gun pulled on you would leave a mark. Maybe not physical, but psychological or emotional. Quicker I was in and out, better to suit everyone. That's the way I looked at it. Um, so the note could slow things down a little bit because, first of all, it, the teller behind the desk when she gets slid a note or he gets slid a note, an alarm bell goes off, I imagine, or a little one. What's this? There's something odd about it. You can imagine the jump and, of panic. Your heart the panic, jump. From their point of view, they must just go out of their skin. So they can't actually, I believe, it takes longer for, for somebody in that state to try and read something, comprehend it, process it, and then respond to you and all that. And then you're trying to maybe, in, in, in one case, I had to actually... Um, kind of repeat what was written on the note. I thought the note's not really helping me here. Um, as crazy as this may sound, I, I believed in, in, in some crazy way that if I went in and put them at some degree of ease, that they weren't going to be hurt. I was simply there for what was in the drawer underneath them. That's all I wanted to be out, and I wasn't going to do anything crazy to get that, but I didn't want them to know that, you know, to, to a degree. But is that not a contradiction? Because it is, you said to me before you didn't want to cause any harm, but it strikes me that if I was an innocent teller working in there mm. and you popped a gun out from underneath a, pa- a newspaper, it would terrify the shite out of me, to be it honest. It would, it would. And there's no, there's no, um, I, 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 I've not come back for that one. I, I can only but agree with you. It scared the, the living shite out of people. Um, some more than others. I would. I, I hoped in my own head that I had minimised that, I and mean, that is so warped. I I, I can't. See, I find it difficult to say. But the idea of oh, well, I'm going to commit a really heinous and and, and uh, horrible crime against somebody, um, prob- probably traumatised me. But I'm going to do that in a nice way. The same time, by the time you say, by the time you I'm say, not here, I'm to, not hurt here you. to hurt you, yeah, that, that's that's psychologically, that's psychological. you've, you've already yeah. massively impacted on people, I imagine. All I can, all I can say, lesser of two evils in my head, in my defense. So, do I go in and I point physically point a gun at somebody? I think that imagery that I, I've been through that, and that's even uh, that's worse again in some ways for me, you know. But I do know the, the impact of a visual live firearm. In, stuck under your chain or pointed at you is, is, is something that takes a long, long time to get out of your head. Yeah. Perhaps it was lessened if somebody were to assure you of something, albeit their intentions were... were, were um, bad. You know, bad. Yeah. Um. Of course, this story all started with the death of Roger Handy. You remember in the last episode... I asked my newsroom colleague Amy Malloy to reach out to his family. The only contact information we had was a landline for his wife Jane, which turned out to be disconnected. But Amy did manage to find her. I explained to her um, why I was there and that we were thinking about doing a podcast with John O'Hegarty. It was interesting to hear that even after two decades, 
Jane and her family were thinking about John, the impact he had on their lives and what had become of him. Then she was like, oh, what a, I was happy to see he, he sorted himself out. And then she's like, but for us, things haven't got better. And she started crying and it was just kind of difficult. So I, then I was just saying to her, look, we just wanted to give you a heads up. And obviously, like what happened to Roger is a part of John's story. But like we, we would like to have an input from Roger's side of things too. And if that would be something you'd be interested in. I felt it was important that we told the Handy family in person that we were making this podcast about John O'Hegarty's life. What happened to your family was also horrible and we want to kind of make sure that part of the story isn't forgotten or kind of blown over. She was like, well, to be honest, I'd have to think about it and discuss it with my family. I might find it kind of cathartic and maybe it might relieve some of the stress that I feel to talk about it after all this time. Um... So I was there for about 15, 20 minutes and she was lovely. I wondered how Jane felt about John now, 20 years after the accident. She mentioned the inquest and him not apologising again. Um, she said John's father came up to her and apologised, but that uh, John himself didn't. It's nice that he he got himself together and got out of the drugs and stuff. But look, here's a broken family still dealing with the fallout kind of thing. Um, she didn't seem, like, seem to have any aggression towards him or, or anything like that. Okay, I think we sit and wait then, yeah, to give her a few days to, to mull it over and talk to whoever she feels she needs to talk to about it. But um, we just have to wait and see then. Wait and see is what we did. Amy reached out to Jane again a few weeks later. And if I'm honest, I wasn't surprised when she decided not to record an interview. It was clear that Roger's loss was still very painful and very raw. There was one other person that I wanted Amy to try track down. Estate agent John McNally was Roger's business partner. You might recall from the inquest records that he was the person who reported John O'Hegarty to the Gardaí on the day after the bicycle accident. I wanted to see how the loss of his friend had affected him. I believe I had, again, just had another realisation. Uh-oh, I made a money. I had sworn again, oh, that's it, not doing this again, not doing this again. I do remember before I went up to the bank, sitting in the house for a little bit longer than normally, but... And I went up to, I believe it was the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, and there's a cafe across the road with a, a gentleman sitting outside, I think I was saying to you. He was sitting there with a, a newspaper and no coffee, and immediately I, I tweaked him as a guard, and I said, OK. <laughs> OK, go and do it anyway. So I think in that moment, something unconsciously said, OK, I, I knew there was something different about this one. It just felt too arranged, was the best word I could find. Why didn't you pull back? That's what I asked myself and asked myself many, many, many times. Um, and I believe I want to come to an end. Then why not just hand yourself in? That was my way of doing it, I guess. I walked up. There was, there was the it was the Ulster Bank, the old Ulster Bank on on Run Road, and there was nobody in the bank. And I walked down to the end. And there was a girl on the end, came out and some whatever I usually say. And I, I know this time I mentioned something. I said something like, "No die packs." And I watched her put all the money into the bag. 
she didn't say anything to me. She didn't look startled. She didn't look anything. The moment she, uh, I, I twigged that, the moment that realization, I said, okay, I'm done. This is a setup. This is way too orchestrated. There should be a natural reaction there. I took the bag back from her and I was a couple of metres away from the door and the die canister went off and created a lot of smoke. So I emerged from the bank to be greeted by at least half a dozen Garda cars marked and unmarked, screeching up. I suppose when you're, you're again, uh, these points that stick out for me, but yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. I sat in the prison cell for a long time saying, John, why did you walk into that bank? You didn't have to. You could have gone, just disappeared. And, and I was later told by a guard outside a cell in the circuit criminal court. He saw me quite plainly and I thought, he said, John, if you weren't on crack cocaine, we would not have caught you. If you'd moved out of Dublin and started doing them up around the country, you'd still be gone. I don't want to say it was my decision when you, you know, but in a way, I feel I did hand myself in that day. I, I'd had enough. Couldn't keep up the illusion, the, this, this mad illusion any longer. You were brought to Donnybrook <clears throat> Garda Station. I was in the back of a car, two guards on one side, one each side of me. And one of them put his arm up on the, the seat over me and he looked over and leant over right into my eye and he looked at me, the game's up now, isn't it? <laughs> they had waited some time to, to catch me. I was brought into the station and sat in front of the sergeant, didn't take my cap off. They removed my cap to quite a degree of um, amazement. They saw I had short hair and there was a collective gasp. They'd all come in. They'd lined up in the in the sergeant's office to uh, take a look at me to see who they'd been chasing all these months. And I suppose trained guards would like to imagine that they're pretty sharp. But to have a guy sitting in a station in front of the sergeant in full disguise and for the best part not know it, I think really did catch them. That was the weekend, that was a Friday. So the next three days were spent uh, during those three days, I went through quite a few interviews. Presumably they asked you, how many was there? I think I told them about a couple um, that they suspected. It accumulated to maybe three or four. Um, and again, I, I was sitting there in cuckoo land, not realising every time I open my mouth, you're giving yourself another term Sent. in prison. So by the time my barrister, or my solicitor rather, came in, and I think his exact words, he shrugged his shoulders were, well, four, 14, or one, who cares? Or what difference does it make? Something like that. So he was kind of going, I give up on you, you know what I mean? I can only do so much. To put it in the vernacular, the guards had a field day. They, they didn't know, they, they, were, they were made up. They couldn't get over themselves. Here's a guy sitting in front of them, just, <laughs> just uh, unfolding, spilling. Yeah, everything. I'd, no, I'd, I, I didn't give a shit. I just couldn't care. I had no concept of consequence. The, the, the worst you could make it, great. I'll, I'll meet you. This insane attitude. I think, being honest, that they were just kind of almost tired with writing. It was, they were handwriting all these, these interviews. My main concern, again, was I was going into withdrawal. So I was in a cell waiting for a doctor um, in heavy withdrawal. Again, the the consequence of my my actions, my my, my omissions, my the, the whole thing, let alone 
atomic effect outwards to have to my family and friends. And uh, I, w- I wasn't able to, I didn't have the headspace for that. I just couldn't. All I could think of was, I'm in a lot of pain, I'm in a lot of pain, I'm in a lot of pain, I'm going to get worse, I'm going to get worse. Who told your parents? Yeah, there was a phone call made from the station um, to my father, I believe. Did you expect him to come? I wasn't sure what was going on. They hadn't told me much. I think they'd, they'd said to me, they'd contacted him. So when he appeared at the, the cell door, I was, I was quite surprised. It was later on in the evening. And you're starting to come down at that point. So the daily intake of cocaine and heroin and some uh, benzos or tablets or Valium, as, as you may know them as, would have obviously not been the same that day. So you'd be going into pretty severe withdrawals. So that first evening in the guard station, I would have, it would have really hit home all then. That's when it all catches up. What type of a man was your father? Because when we began talking about your story and you had a good education and a yeah. normal upbringing and uh, you went to Trinity and you set up your own business, it would be easy for any parent, I think, to be proud of that type of a trajectory. And now he finds himself in Donnybrook Garda Station with a son who's going through serious withdrawals and is one of the most wanted criminals in Ireland. I don't know still to this day how they both coped with it, you know. I'd say it was surreal for me. I managed to keep complete um, secrecy about the whole thing. So I had friends later tell me they were in different situations, as they were told. Some of them were in a, one of them was rather was in a barber shop and ended up getting his head all Cutting ways it shouldn't have been because he panicked when he read it on the newspaper. I had friends that were in different, all sorts of things. I think my dad had told me afterwards when they rang, they, they panicked, they assumed I was in a, an accident on the motorcycle or something. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there was a, there was, to say there was a lot of explaining to do, yeah, that still sits with me, you know. Sits, sits Did you ever heavy. discuss it at any stage in the years since? With? With my, your father? Oh, yes, I have, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, um, he was somebody that uh, I got to know very well over the, the the next six plus years because he, you know, he'd, he'd come up and see me and we'd chat. And so we, we spoke, we spoke at length about it. I don't believe the man ever had a parking ticket. I mean, literally, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good guy. He's an <laughs> upstanding citizen, you know. So again, I... I think you're aware that my grandfather would have been a military man. So, yeah, there was, there was, there was, uh, to say they were shocked would be a, a massive understatement, Kev. You have a father who you said never had a parking ticket and then you've got to this point. So when the hand came through the cell for the handshake, what did your father say to you? What did you say to him? Sorry. Sorry, you can say. I can say. I believe he just said to me, "It's going to be okay," and it was. Mm-hmm. I believed him. It's the coolest thing he ever did. What happens then? You've made some admissions during the questioning mm. with Gardy, yeah. but you've got a solicitor now who's advising you to shut up. To, to shut up. I presume you were brought to a district court to be charged. Brought to um, the Dublin District Court um, on, I 
believe Monday morning. Maybe it was a special one on Sunday. Were you given methadone or anything by the doctors who came to yeah, see so you? Yeah, so I was, I was, I was given methadone that night in the in the cell for that or that, that 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 night on the Friday night and the Saturday night and then the Sunday. The breaking of my bail occurred about a month after, and that was that was probably the end of it. You know, I knew I was going to the big house that night. There was no bail. There was no well. It was just you're going to prison. Coming up, and I'm not here to hurt you. You have to crawl your way back out of a pit. You're you're at the very bottom of a pit with barely any light at the top, and you have to get bloodied fingernails and, and, and crawl up. As I said, it was a dark night of the soul for me. I guess it was a turning point. What I would see is the most important part of this. That November day took one man's life. That's where it all, all begins. Did you know John O'Hegarty all those years ago? Maybe you worked in a bank and were one of his victims. If so, we'd like to hear from you. You can contact us at podcasts, with an S, at independent.ie. I'm Not Here to Hurt You was presented by Kevin Doyle. Series producer is Gareth Mulhall. Executive producer is Mary Carroll. Assistant producer and sound design by John Smith, with additional sound recordings by Gavin Hennessy. Special thanks to RTE Archives and Amy Malloy. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash news forward slash helplines. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.